Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 9, verses 1 through 6 and 13 through 18. And that can be found on page 636 in the Pew Bibles. Wisdom has built her house. She has set it up with its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament lesson is from James 3, verses 13 through 18, found on page 112, 18 of your pew Bibles. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I love that Proverbs passage, so intense, right? Like, little do they know the dead are there. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, we're not talking about Proverbs today, we're talking about James. Um, But you should read it. If you haven't read Proverbs lately, it's so great. 
Um, anyway, we are uh, trekking through the Bible, continuing on with James, and you're going to have to watch the Bible Project video if you want an overview, because I'm not giving you any sort of an overview today. We're just focusing in on this one little comparison that James makes. Um, he contrasts the wisdom of God with bitter envy and selfish ambition, which struck me because I wouldn't put those as opposites, right? Like Proverbs, I'd, much, I'd be much more likely to say the opposite of wisdom is folly or maybe it's ignorance. Um, but James chooses envy and selfish ambition, which, well, they got me thinking. You know, those are both things that we kind of know are bad. Like nobody thinks it's good to be envious or um, selfishly ambitious. Uh, but they also make up a big part of the wisdom of the world. Uh, they are the wisdom of conquering kings, which we have seen all through history. The wisdom of CEOs grabbing up market share, of those of us who climb the corporate ladder trying to make a name for ourselves. They are the wisdom behind 10 million advertisements that tell us that we need more, that we deserve more, and look, this could be you. They are the wisdom that makes us all depressed as we scroll through Facebook and Instagram, and also the wisdom that keeps us scrolling. Um, they are the wisdom of defensiveness and counterattack, which I don't know about you, but I move to defensiveness rather quickly. Because um, this wisdom lives in me. Uh, they are the wisdom of the Karens of the world who believe they deserve something more and are outraged when they don't get it, and they are the wisdom of all of those of us who would shame the Karens as a response. Both envy and selfish ambition look out at the world and they look in at themselves and they say, I don't have enough, I am not enough, and I need more. Bitter envy just stews in that want, while selfish ambition, ambition goes out to take what it can, but both live in a world where there's not enough to go around. A world where you have to try to prove yourself. And so you turn to one-upping and judgment and criticism and stepping on others to make a way. Both those words in the Greek have connotations of rivalry. And of course they do, because both envy and selfish ambition spring from comparison. We can only deem ourselves good if we are better or more than someone else. James says that this kind of wisdom, the NIV has it in quotes, this kind of wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, which seems a little harsh, uh, but I think he's right. You can see how it's inherently divisive, right? Um, wishing that we had what others have or striving for more for ourselves alone, it sets us against other people right from the get-go. Everyone becomes a potential rival. And in a way, whether or not we get what we want, we will be alone in both of these places. You cannot truly be with someone if they are always potentially a threat. And from that place of not enough, 
both seem like they are, both will tell us the lie that they are the road to get to good things. Right? It seems like, how could I possibly get there if I'm not striving after it? Doesn't looking at what other people that's good, like what the goodness that other people have, isn't that the way to find it for myself? But neither envy nor selfish ambition will create anything good in the world. Envy feeds on the goodness. And selfish ambition crushes it on its way up. They both gnaw at us from the inside. As we stare at what we do not have, we forget the goodness that we have. As we fixate on what we are not, we neglect what we are. In the very next verses after our passage, James uh, goes out real quick, go, moves really quickly to how this turns to murder. Um, for uh, most of us, I would guess it's a little bit more subtle than that uh, and a little harder to spot. But like true wisdom yields good fruit, the fruit of envy and selfish ambition will rot in our hands. It will never be what we thought it could be. And that should be enough if we're watching. That should be enough to root it out. Envy and selfish ambition breed conflict and resentment. And self-hatred and a lack of gratitude. And so James calls it the opposite of wisdom that comes from God. And I think the shortcomings of, of these two become clearest when we consider the opposite. Instead of beginning from not enough, the wisdom of God begins with all the fullness of God. It starts in the opposite place. So when it looks out into the world, and when it looks deep into itself, it sees enough. More than enough, actually. And so it gives freely. And not just money and things, it gives of itself. Wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Unlike envy and selfish ambition, each of the characteristics of true wisdom are things that draw us to one another, rather than divide. They attend to what is real, to what is here, rather than what could be. And they invite connection rather than division. And the words are so generous. They are about making space for others, for their perspectives, for their opinions, for their gifts, and even for their flaws. We'll go through each of them. When there's lists like this, I really like to look at the Greek behind them or the Hebrew. If it's, because when there's no context, it's hard to get quite what they're pointing at. Um, and one word is usually not quite enough to translate from another language um, as accurately as you'd like to, but the translators have to pick one word. Um, so pure is pretty straightforward. It means uncontaminated. Uncontaminated by sin, no ulterior motives, no hidden agendas. It is what it is. Wisdom that comes from God is straightforward, with nothing lurking in the shadows. It is peace-loving. And whenever we hit peace in the Bible, we always have to stop to consider it because uh, our English word is so much less than both the Greek and the Hebrew. Um, this is not just peace of mind. This is not just an absence of conflict. 
piece here is irene, and like shalom, the Hebrew version, it has to do with flourishing of the whole person. The love of peace is more than to love everyone minding their own business and keeping quiet when they're upset. It's not Midwestern or Canadian niceness. To love peace is to seek the good of all, which of course also tends to resolve conflicts. But usually it happens through hard conversations and collaboration and new imagination. Like Dr. King said, true peace is not merely the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. True peace finds harmony and reconciliation in a way that works for everyone by engaging all the perspectives, not by silencing some voices, even our own. Loving that kind of peace requires more from us and it yields more too. Considerate um, doesn't, like, when we think considerate, I tend to think like, oh, someone knew that I was sick and they brought me a cup of tea. Um, I think I said this like two sermons ago uh, because we came across this word again. But here and wherever we were preaching from before, considerate means um, it's more like they're willing to consider your opinion, willing to consider your perspective. They will take the time to understand. It's fair and it is reasonable. That's what considerate means in this space. It's much more about like making room for another, which may also include offering a cup of tea, <laughs> but it's much bigger. Um, submissive, that's our next one. Uh, that word kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth because of uh, the ways it's been used against women. Uh, but what the Greek here means is that it is willing to be convinced. It is inclined toward you already. And so it's easy to come to terms. Sort of like giving the benefit of the doubt, but maybe a little stronger than that. That wisdom is full of mercy or full of compassion. It makes room for us not to be perfect. And of course, all of those things yield good fruit. You see how it's so generous. It's so giving. True wisdom is an outpouring. Wisdom is congenial. It wants to get along and it's willing to learn. It's loving and it's understanding and it is kind. It wants the flourishing of the other. But all of that not without a center or a self because those last words, impartial and sincere. Impartial speaks to not being swayed by externals like status or money not being swayed away from goodness. There is a firmness there. And sincere, this wisdom is not false or flimsy. It's not fake. Do you know, this is not in my notes, but I'm just going to say it. Our word sincere means uh, without wax. Sin is without and seer is wax. And I think it's Latin. Uh, and it's because people used to make, you know, when people would make pots out of clay... If there was a crack, someone who was dishonest might fill the crack with wax and then sell the pot 
anyways, and then whenever you put something hot in it, the wax would melt and everything would leak all over the floor. Uh, so sincere, without wax, it is what it looks like. It is truly what it is, and it's not going to leave you hanging. It's not going to leave your soup all over the floor, uh, as it were. <laughs> And it can be, this wisdom can be sincere because this way of living is actually nearer to our created selves than envy and, self, and selfish ambition are, right? Envy and selfish ambition look like ways for getting things for ourselves, but they are not who we truly are. There will always be deception in them. They will never yield what we want because they begin with a lie. But when we move towards love, which... Is not, that not what all these descriptors are? When we move toward love, we move toward ourselves. Um, Tony's been reading, and I have been gleaning from his wisdom. Uh, Tony's been reading Thomas Merton's, um, can't even remember the name of the book, New Seeds of Contemplation. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading it because, man, he is, just everything he says is like a thousand miles deep. Um, anyway, he has this quote. He says, To say that I am made in the image of God is to say that love is the reason for my existence. For God is love. Love is my true identity. Selflessness is my true self. Love is my true character. Love is my name. I'm convinced that the wisdom that James speak of, speaks of, true wisdom that comes from God, begins in a place of fullness because its opposites, envy and selfish ambition, they are so empty and grasping. Plus, I am much more likely to behave with true wisdom when I know that fullness in myself. When I am filled with love, when I know the presence of God, and not at all when I'm trying to grasp at something for myself. It reminds me of Psalm 131. It reads, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. As a mother who has had not weaned child, children and weaned ones, uh, just the longing for, like, May, I used to not, this is not in my notes, we're way off here. I used to walk through a room and May would begin to scream at me uh, immediately. Like, she'd be fine, and then as soon as she saw me, she would scream at me. And this happened for, like, a month, and then I had to quit nursing her because she was so insistent all the time that that's all she ever wanted to do if I was around. And now we can snuggle. <laughs> like a weaned child, I am content. And it is our hope in God that allows us to live in this full and giving way. To be content. To be calmed and quieted, even in the face of difficulty. Because in God, we know that we are enough. And in God, we are not facing this world alone. Not only are we with God, the giver of all good things, 
but we are also with one another, joined together by the blood of Christ. Thomas Merton again says, we are members of one another, and anything given to one member is given to the whole body. Anything given to one member is given to the whole body. And in the economy of God, every gift is already yours. Just as your gifts are everyone's. And so there is no space for envy. Just like I can't clap and sing at the same time, like that's the extent of my musical giftings. But your musical gifts become mine in the worship service. And I can rejoice that you have them. And I have gifts to offer you in that same way. I've been reading Braiding Sweetgrass by uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. I think like three of you recommended it to me, so several of you have read it too. Um, She's a botanist and a member of the Potawatomi Nation, and she talks about indigenous ways of knowing and the wisdom of plants. Uh, Near the beginning of the book, she has a chapter about pecans. Uh, Pecans produce nuts every year, but every once in a while they have a mast year and they go above and beyond and produce more nuts than anybody can imagine. And actually, if you are stepping on a lot of acorns these days, it's because it's a mast year for oak trees right now. Um, These trees, both pecans and oaks, have mast years on this like unpredictable schedule. Like, scientists can't figure out what triggers a mast year. Which is, isn't that amazing? It's like May's narwhal thing. Like, it means that the, because what's happening is the trees, it's not like one tree or one little clump of trees has a mast year at the same time. It's like all the trees do it. So all the oak trees in Grand Rapids, probably across the state, are having a mast year. They're all making an enormous amount of acorns. And they didn't do it like two years ago and then two years before that and two years before that. It's like every two to five years and no one knows when it's going to happen or what makes it happen. Um, Somehow they're talking to each other. Now I've completely lost myself. Anyway, (laughs) but this way of being in the world for these trees has wisdom in it. And this is what's so amazing about it. For regular years, it keeps the squirrel and other nut-eater populations down right, at kind of a reasonable level. And then when they produce a mass, when they have a mast year, it produces so much that the squirrels can entirely just glut themselves and there will still be enough nuts to plant some trees. It is, um, sorry, I keep going off my notes and then I can't figure out what I'm talking about. (laughs) The next year, the trees will then grow slower Um, because they have to rest, because it takes a lot of energy to produce all those nuts all at once. Um, And if the trees weren't working together like this, it wouldn't work. Like if one tree was like, oh, I'll just make a bunch of nuts this year, then the squirrels would all eat it, and it'd be gone. But because they all do it at the same time, there is just too much for the squirrels to even possibly think of consuming. And so Kimmerer says that we learn from the pecan and also from the oak that all flourishing is mutual. We have to be together in it if we're gonna flourish. All flourishing is mutual. They give their gifts and they rest and they all flourish together, even the squirrels. This is the wisdom that comes from God, 
all flourishing is mutual. I am enough because I'm not alone, but because of you. In our culture, it is difficult to choose to believe that God has made you enough. But that is our faith. And in, the good, in God's goodness, you can give out of what God has given you, and only that, and rest in the things that you can't do, because someone else can chip in there. This is the body of Christ, right? And so we can celebrate every gift that is among us, and all flourishing is mutual. Like, what a different way to live if we actually believed that. We are not alone. We belong to one another. And what you have been given is for everyone. And me too. But it really, really does require that I have my hope in God, to, like for my own self, to try and live this way. It is terribly vulnerable to say, I am enough as I am. And I cannot do this or the other thing. Like I am, you know this, I'm terrible at all administrative tasks and I will forget to call you back and return your email. And it's true, it just is. And I try really hard to fix it, but I need help. And so Ellen and Mika help because they're better at these things. And they help me schedule stuff because if, I'm, if it's left up to me, it will never happen. <laughs> like, and that's not, I mean, and the temptation is to say, get it together, Jen, you're an adult, you should figure it out. And like, that's what I say to myself. And then I drown in shame and how come other people can do this thing that I can't do and I'm supposed to be more grown up. But that's not where we live in the body of Christ. You have a gift to offer, and you can offer it, and you can put your hands down, and you can rest. You can rejoice that other people have gifts that are not like yours, and receive from those gifts as well. And then we run up against this exact same thing, just like we talked about last week. It's this same truth that we just are not God. And we were never intended to do all the things. We are creatures. We're not meant to do this thing alone. We belong to one another. We are members of one another. And a gift given to any one of us is a gift given to all. Since the fall, we also have this uh, additional burden of sin that gets in our way, right? But Christ has made a way for that too. And so again, we can say, even though I fall short, even though I get defensive and I forget the wisdom of God, even though I have my days, I am enough even in that moment. And when we're willing to accept our creatureliness, our need for one another, and the never-ending mercy of our God, we can move away from this constant refrain that our culture bombards us with, you are not enough, you need more. We can move away from it and hear instead the voice of our God calling us the beloved, 
you are made exactly as you are intended to be. You are a creature and nothing else. And we become, instead of people grasping and crying for more, we become a people of gratitude. A people who can, at the same time, give what we have and also ask for help. We no longer have to fear not having enough. This is part of the reason that we need the church, right? Like, it's not just like we come together because, like, the Bible said we should come together, and also, like, I guess it's encouraging for me. Like, if we're to be people who are to put on display the generosity of our God, we actually need each other. It's not just a nice idea of community, we literally cannot do it alone. I need your gifts as much as you need mine. And so, we can, so that we can sing together the song of the pecans and the oak trees, all flourishing is mutual. Our God gives enough because every gift is given for all. And true wisdom lives out of the fullness of our God. That is given to all of God's people. And it always draws us to love. Because that is who God is and that is who we are. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would teach us that the wisdom of your body is um, so much more than a nice idea. But that each part necessitates the others, that we need one another. And that true wisdom calls us to look for the gift of the other, to assume it's there. True wisdom calls us to love. Lord, may we be a people who put on display your generosity and kindness in the way that we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.